Welcome to the Frontline Response to Health and Homelessness podcast series. This series is based on the articles published in the March 2020 edition of Parity Magazine, which is available on the link accompanying the podcast. That magazine and this series give voice to those with lived experience of homelessness, those working on the front line, and those that support the sector in delivering services to people who are homeless. My name is Dan Fleming, and I'm delighted to introduce our host, John Willis, who leads the inclusive health team for St. Vincent's Health Australia. John's going to introduce our guests in just a moment. As we're recording during the COVID-19 pandemic, both John and our guests will be with us by phone for this episode. John Willis, over to you. Thanks, Dan. It's my wonderful pleasure to welcome Jack Snelling, Health and Wellbeing Project Manager, and Rochelle Weston, Centre Manager, both from Baptist Care South Australia. Lovely to have you both on our little podcast series. How are you both going this, this afternoon? Good, thank Very you. Very well, thanks, John. Fantastic. Well, look, you're a first for our series. We had a number of firsts, um, but you're our first from South Australia, so... Welcome. Um, we've covered Victoria, Queensland, WA and Tassie, so we've been around on the telephone, that is. Um, but great to have finally gotten to the home of churches. So, to your article, it outlines how you've received some funding and you've partnered with a local health network to set up a pilot project to address a specific need of homeless people in Adelaide, which is wonderful. And I've had the chance to chat to Jack previously about this, so it's, it's lovely to hear, and hear a little bit more about your work. But before we jump into that, it'd be good to hear a little bit about your organisation. So if I can start with you, Rochelle, can you outline for our listeners who Baptist Care South Australia is and what services you provide? Absolutely. Uh, so Baptist Care SA is the community services agency of the Baptist churches in South Australia. We were established in 1913 and we've been working for years on the front lines with the most vulnerable citizens. That's a um, long time. SA. Yes, over 100 years. Fabulous. <laughs> um, so Baptist Care SA provides a broad range of services, including out-of-home care, disability care, youth education, employment and training, mental health and wellbeing services, homelessness services, Aboriginal services and therapeutic support. Wow, that's quite a lot. It's quite a big <laughs> agency. How many people work for, for Baptist Care SA? Oh, I actually think it's over 1,000. over 1,000 wow. employees. That's a big organisation. Great. It is. (laughs) Well, thanks for giving us that little outline. So, Jack, if I could bring you in now just to talk about the background of this pilot project. How did it come about? Um, Baptist Care and receipt of a a significant bequest um, and uh, they, uh, Baptist Care, uh, asked me to head up a, a project to work out how to best invest this bequest in a way to... Uh, particularly address the health issues facing our clients at our who are predominantly homeless in our West mm. Care uh, service in the in the western part of the Adelaide CBD. Um, and one of the uh, first things that came uh, up through our consultation was this problem of uh, um, hospital becoming a bit of a revolving door for people experiencing homelessness. So yeah. uh, they'd get sick. They'd, they'd, uh, the, 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 their illness would go untreated and they'd be outside, um, so which is not a great place to recuperate um, from an illness or an injury, and it'd get to the critical point where they'd require admission to not into hospital and then they'd be discharged, often um, discharged uh, you know, back into circumstances where they're not going to be able to properly recuperate, and then they were back in hospital, which is this revolving door. 
um, and and they would just get sicker and sicker. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was very keen uh, as part of this project to look at how might we look at ways of breaking the cycle uh, for these particular clients in a way that worked for both the clients and for the hospital because it's not really in the hospital's interest to have patients con- constantly readmitting uh, when um, because their condition hasn't been really properly dealt with and we haven't dealt with, the, I guess, those social determinants of their health. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was the model. So we looked around Australia and particularly interested in St Vincent's um, uh, facilities in both Melbourne and in Sydney, so uh, uh, the cottage and 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 John Tinney, uh, Tinney House, sorry, in um, yep. in Sydney, which uh, and and we thought this would be a great thing to try out uh, as as part of uh, this project in South Australia. Um, mm. Central Adelaide Local Health Network, who are the health network who have governance of the Royal Adelaide Hospital. Uh, uh, were, were interested as well uh, and, and, and recognised that this was a particular problem and there was an opportunity here for us to try and, and try pilot something to, that, that would try and address this issue. Um, so they provided us with funding and were able also to attract uh, funding from the Hospital Research Foundation uh, in South Australia and the Wyatt Trust, um, which enabled us to pilot this facility um, for six months and, uh, and and that's what we're just coming towards the end of at the moment, the end, that, the end of that, that initial six-month uh, period. Fantastic. So thanks for the plug, Jack, for St Vincent's. I love that. We didn't have to pay Jack for that one. Just want to make that note. Um, but look, um, you've obviously had a look at some different models around the country to see, you know, particularly that step-up, step-down service that um, St Vincent's has used quite effectively. Um, so what, what kind of model of care have you ended up with that you're actually trialling? And you've mentioned one of your main partners, but is there any other partnerships you have and what, what's your vision for your service? Well, our vision, to start with the last bit first, our vision, you know, we would like to be able to develop this in a purpose-built facility. We're using some existing units that that oh, right. uh, yep. had at the time, so we haven't, haven't had to sink very much capital into the project. Um, but ultimately, we see this as, a, a, as part of the investment of this bequest. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so that's the, that's, that's the thinking. If we can prove up the pilot and show that this is an effective uh, model and convince uh, funders um, to, uh, to, to um, provide us with ongoing funding, well, then we would, we'd be in a position to invest um, part of the bequest into, into the creation of a purpose-built facility to, do, to continue providing this, this service. So that's the vision. Um, the model of care that we've had is um, we've, we've probably gone more towards a sort of social worker-led service rather than a health service because Baptist Care is not a, a health provider and hasn't mm. been a health provider up till now. So um, the nursing and, uh, is done uh, not by Baptist Care but by inreach from the hospital. And so those community nursing scenes of the hospital love it because whereas in the past they would have to uh, drive around and try and find clients um, who could be anywhere. Um, yes. We because they're located and they're being properly cared for, and um, their social needs and their emotional needs are, are being being addressed, and they have some stability and an opportunity to get better after a stay in hospital or after an illness. Um, it just provides a much better outcome. And then Rochelle and her team uh, have done fantastic work. Then trying to connect those clients into. Um, both long-term case management and try to do something to address their accommodation issues. And we've had some great partnerships with some accommodation providers um, to, to be able to refer clients and get, get so that they're not on the streets and that they've got 
more stable accommodation and And ultimately on a path towards housing. So, Jack, um, partnerships have obviously been a key part of this project. Do you want to tell us about who some of your key partners here that got this project off the ground? Sure. Uh, Look, our key partnership is with Central Adelaide Local Health Network. So they're the organisation that has governance over the Royal Adelaide Hospital. And uh, our partnership with them has been critical. Um, Obviously, they've provided the bulk of the funding for the pilot, um, but they've also provided the health in reach. Baptist Care is not a health organisation. We don't employ nurses. And, and Rochelle's team are uh, a, a social worker type uh, position. So we've relied very heavily on their health experts to come into the facility and provide the health services. And it's that joining up of health services and social care, which is really the key to the, to the whole model and what makes it work so well. Thanks, Jack, for that. Back to you, Rochelle. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about the, the outcomes because you're working in this service, you're managing this service, um, and tell us a little bit about some of the achievements. And also in your article, you do have a, a client story that you provided in your article. Maybe you want to tell us one of your client stories. So how's it been going? Absolutely. Um, well, we're obviously very proud um, of what we have managed to accomplish in such a short amount of time. And uh, we are South Australia's first ever homelessness respite facility um, and we consider our service to be incredibly essential um, to addressing some of the pretty core issues that are happening amongst um, the homeless kind of population in, in Adelaide CBD. But yep. since we, um, we opened in the mid-January of this year, uh, we have seen 39 clients enter our doors We've also had not only Carlin but other clinical providers uh, providers deliver numerous health interventions such as wound care, antibiotics, medication management um, to manage and resolve many of our clients' clinical needs. Uh, in addition of these 39 clients, we've had 34 clients referred to long-term case management. So when they leave our facility, they're still connected to case management. They can pick up where we leave off and um, help them towards long-term goals. And we've also sourced uh, for short-term accommodation outcomes for 28 of our clients, which is basically 70, 72%, so well above passing mm. <laughs> uh, grade. <Right. laughs> um, through our wraparound services, we have um, enabled pathways to be created um, with Carlin as well. So the transition pathways that we've created for our clients um, are connecting people to the NDIS, which if you know anything about that is incredibly difficult. Complex. Um, yeah, it's very <laughs> complex and very convoluted for a lot of people. Mm. So connecting people to GPs that can support them with their NDIS um, application. We've provided over 500 meals for our clients since January. Um, um, most of our clients have heavily engaged in their clinical care within the facility. Um, mm. Clients stay in the facility for respite, so they're actually using their beds to recover. Um, we've connected clients with Nunkin Warren Unity and the Link Up program, so that's basically tracing back um, family uh, connections um, when right. the connections yep. have been severed. Um, yeah. Connecting people with Drug and Alcohol Services SA, the, the Aboriginal Legal Rights Movement, um, connecting people with the Elders program, the Aboriginal Elders program that's run by Baptist Care. Uh, Yarrow Place and other domestic violence services. Um, clients also um, engage in recreational activities um, on site. We have quite a large number of Aboriginal women that do their um, their painting, so they're dreaming. Um, so they paint their dreaming in the facility. We provide some canvases and some paint for that as well. Um, but even right. pra- practical things on site, like assisting clients with making police reports, 
um, well-being of clients, like clients who have trouble sleeping, engaging them in how to um, get a better night's rest, escorting mm. clients to appointments, both clinical and housing-related. Um, another major issue for people experiencing homelessness is losing their ID. And obviously, in today's world, you need ID for everything. Um, <laughs> so assisting people with the reissuing of their ID. Um, so we we try and link up with the emergency relief program on site at Baptist Care and when our clients uh, discharge from the facility, providing them with um, food parcels, uh, establishing private health insurance for clients and encouraging our clients when obviously it's operational to go to the West Care, to, um, West Care Centre for meals and for that sort of social activity where they're engaging with other people. Um, and the workers we have on site and the volunteers when we were operational um, on site to just engage and build relationships. Fantastic. And we've done a lot. <laughs> Thanks for that, Rochelle. Now, look, it would be really good if you could tell us maybe one of the stories, one of your client's stories that you've provided in your article. Absolutely. Uh, so one example that comes to mind is of a client that had presented to the emergency department numerous times. Uh, due to being placed in our facility, their clinical care was addressed on site and um, to date they have not represented to the hospital. So with the social support structures around them, they were able to have a safe and peaceful place for respite, actively attend clinical appointments on site and if needed externally and obtain long-term case management and engage with, pro with programs on site such as enjoying meals at the West Care Centre um, and at the end of their, um, their stay in our facility, we were able to secure safe uh, accommodation for them. Mm. And so as the pilot has progressed, we have been fortunate enough to see a number of these success stories. It's actually um, the norm <laughs> for us to right. see those kinds of outcomes. Um, so we're, we're obviously really excited by all the positive outcomes that we've been able to obtain for our clients thus far. Brilliant. Look, I, I was—I had the pleasure of speaking to um, a guy from the US who talked about one of the most important things is follow-up about 12 or 18 months after someone's housed. Does, does Baptist Care do sort of follow-up support once people have been permanently housed? Is there an ongoing way of supporting clients? Yes, yeah, so we're actually really fortunate in here. Um, we do follow-up with our clients as well. So obviously um, for, the, for the majority of clients, it's a two-week stay with us. So it's a very fast turnaround. Um, yep. And so linking them to long-term case management is very important for that follow-up, but we also do our own follow-up. So we, when our clients leave the facility, it's, um, it's always kind of bittersweet um, and most people mm. don't want to leave. <laughs> so we do yeah. manage to build really strong relationships with our clients in that, in that two-week time. But then once we hand a client over, we do like a formal um, handover with, the, with another service for case management and then we just keep in contact with that service and they obviously are working with the client um, until yeah. a long-term housing outcome uh, has been um, secured for them. So it's kind of a bit twofold. They're probably hearing from their long-term case managers, but then once in a while they're also hearing from us. So. <laughs> yep, fantastic. Well, look, we, as I've asked most people on this podcast series, we're about COVID-19, and look, we've been in it now for a, a good few months now, and there's many things that we've learnt and bounced around as a health system to try and respond to the needs of some of our most vulnerable people that our services are trying to address. But yours is a particularly um, interesting one. It's a pilot and right really bang at the start of your pilot, you hit COVID-19. Mm. Um, I just wonder what changes to the model 
or how you've managed the pandemic um, in, in the front lines. So I'll start with you first, Rochelle. But how, how did you have to modify your model of care to, to address the needs of COVID-19 in this kind of residential kind of facility? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you're right. It's interesting timing, obviously, with a pilot and then a pandemic. Um, yep. No one can really plan for that. So <laughs> um, basically having the pilot thing yeah, running in the middle of COVID, it's just seen the, num the number of our client referrals drop. Um, and this is obviously likely due to fewer people presenting at the hospital. So hospitals were really quiet in, um, in Adelaide. But also, I think they have been everywhere. <laughs> yeah, which is probably the likely story, um, which I guess is a good thing because people were taking it seriously um, and mm. avoiding going to the hospitals. But the broader state government initiative to provide access to emergency motel accommodation was also something that happened in South Australia. Um, mm -hmm. So um, people who were sleeping rough were able to access motel or hotel accommodation during COVID pandemic. Um, so obviously it goes to show the hospitals are quiet because accommodation was being offered, but it, 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 is, it is very important to have um, alternative accommodation during this time, but it was clear to us that obviously the HRS um, really does address the deeper issues uh, than merely, merely providing accommodation for clients because without continued support or long-term case management, it would be really difficult to get those optimal housing outcomes, say long-term housing outcomes, um, as opposed to you know going into a motel and not being really supported the way that you are in a facility like ours. Um, so we're 24/7 staffed as well, so yeah. there's always oh. somebody on site to um, to assist a client with whatever they may be dealing with. Those kinds of support services aren't really offered elsewhere, um, not mm. also with trained staff. Um, so that's something that we've really just noticed. It's really important, obviously, the link between safe accommodation and your health improving. It's really yep. evident. But obviously, certain things like within the facility, just practicing good hygiene and social distancing, and you know, supporting clients to become aware about what's going on with the pandemic. It's um, it can be like the cohort of clients that we engage with sometimes can be, you know, they they have to deal with a lot of things on in, a, in an average day. Um, yeah. So this is kind of just another thing that's on top of their heavy load. So, you know, yeah. having those conversations about this is for your safety, um, you might, might need to pay a little bit more attention to what's going on around you, you know, being apart from people, um, you know, uh, making sure your your personal hygiene is up to a high standard, just sorts of those things when we capture people in our facility, we can actually have those in-depth conversations. And our clients have been really receptive as well, like um, the practising of social distancing and um, using hand sanitizer. that's just become the norm. Um, yep. So we've been really, it's been it's been really good having the facility and we've been really fortunate, um, but also, you know, educating our clients about what's actually going on out there and what this might mean for them. We've yeah. also um, had, like, we've been really fortunate as working with the Royal Adelaide Hospital um, and the RA was a designated COVID hospital, so we've just been yeah. able to draw on Carlin's knowledge of an evolving health issue, so it's almost like we've got a direct line <laughs> to them to say, hey, ah. Perfect. What, what should yeah well what should we be doing like are we you know is this is this all right like um, any advice that they could offer us regarding our clients and making sure that everything's completely safe but we definitely expect um, an increase uh, on referrals once the hotel and motel accommodation arrangements have ceased and that the hospitals go back to normal so we we know that it's an interesting time but it's not going to yep. last so. <laughs> 
Uh, but the federal government's going to provide permanent housing for everyone, Michelle. That's what's Oh, that oh, sounds amazing. That's, it, that's, that's, that's where we're pushing here. I'm yeah. fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope. Um, there's a lot of lobbying going on and um, <laughs> hopefully we can build social housing to get ourselves out of this eco- economic yeah. situation. So, Jack, any, any sort of broader thoughts from you about COVID and the impact on what, the work that you're trying to do? Well, when we're talking about the project and, and, and thinking about initiating a pilot, and I, I was thinking about what, what might go wrong. Um, <laughs> global pandemic wasn't on my list, um, and, and, and particularly global pandemic that resulted in hospitals not getting any presentations was certainly <laughs> yeah. uh, not something I would have ever, ever, ever anticipated. Um, but, yeah. but nonetheless, it's what, ha- it's what happened, and it has... It's just made it difficult for us to be able to prove the concept um, because we just haven't had the referrals, the number of referrals you would normally expect uh, mm. uh, to the facility. So, um, you know, we're keen to get this pilot extended so that we can uh, have it running under normal operating conditions. Um, and before COVID, you know, we, we, the facility was sitting probably 70 or 80 percent occupancy, um, yeah. and that's what we would expect uh, it to be. So to be It'd be great to have an opportunity to prove it under under normal normal operating circumstances, so we can really mm. gather the data to, um, to 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 prove that this is a facility that can provide some you know far improved health outcomes on on what this group of, of consumers would normally expect. Mm. And as I've mentioned before many times, is every one of those data points is a person's life um, and all the all the history and trauma. So if we can assist and remember that everyone every one of those people we're helping is significant. So sometimes big numbers don't really count, but I know for government and for justifying models of care, we do need the numbers. But it sounds like you're doing some great work anyway. So last question I've got um, for both of you, but I'll start with you, Jack. Um, I've basically been asking everyone on the series, what has been a story or an encounter that you've had over your life, in, it could be a working life or your personal life, that inspires you to make a difference in this area to, to keep doing the work you're doing? So, so Jack, what, what, is there a story or an encounter you want to share with us? Well, I think, I think what sort of inspires me is that in, in my previous life, I was a, a minister in the state government and I was both, you know, a couple of years treasurer and a couple of years, a few years, five years, I was minister for health. Yeah. And one of the things that always frustrated me uh, was you could see how much government, how much money government was having to spend on people in crisis when for a relatively small investment up front, you could have prevented that crisis to begin with. Um, and, and addressing some basic things like housing and um, you know a bit of case management, you can you, you don't have to spend millions and millions of dollars, uh, you know, keeping keeping a group of people um, as inpatients in a hospital, and and in a way that actually means they never really get better. I mean, if if, if you've got a homeless person who's going to, on that revolving door. Generally, what happens is they just get sicker and sicker until they die, <laughs> unless yep. you address their accommodation and some of those other basic issues. Um, mm. And you know, it's a, I've always it's been um, a frustration for me that you know it's sort of unfinished business <laughs> uh, yep. for me uh, from mm. my political life. It was, I didn't feel I ever did enough really to be able to address that. So this has been a great opportunity um, to do something in a far more practical way. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, to try and to try and to try and make a small impact uh, in this area, and I've just been so grateful that this care has given me that opportunity. Brilliant. Oh, look, Jack. Um, yes, thank you for all your working 
in government and public life, it is not easy in government to do these things, but it clearly makes economic sense. It's just hard to know how you move the system around to, to do that prevention as opposed to just picking up the pieces at the bottom of the cliff. Um, Very hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really challenging, but thanks and great that you're still here in the area. Linda, I'm sorry, Rochelle, pardon me. Um, okay. Any story, story or uh, reflection from you? Um, absolutely. I was just thinking back, as Jack was talking about his former life, <laughs> um, I have not worked in government, um, but when I was around 17, I went um, up north and I was exposed to the most beautiful Aboriginal communities. And it, up until that point in my life, I just never had an experience like it. But I remember walking away thinking, how, how is there so much disadvantage in such an affluent country? What, mm. what are we doing to really address these, these situations? What is going on? Um, and I mean, looking to the government for some of those answers, and I just, sorry, Jack, but I felt so dissatisfied with, with how it was being addressed. And so it kind of set the course for my life. And I, I look at my position now where I'm, I'm working and I'm actively engaging with um, Aboriginal and non, non-Aboriginal people on every day. In my, in my job and the work we do here, we really see it as capturing vulnerable people at a pivotal point um, and supporting them with, with, with firm structures and culturally appropriate structures um, around them to assist them with making good decisions for their future. Um, and it, all, it always starts for us with what led you to this point, what would you like to share with us and what are your goals for the future and how do we help you? get to that point. Um, so I guess what really inspires me is having somebody come through the facility, be really honest about what's going on in their situation and working actively with, with my team, not only myself, but my entire team to kind of change the trajectory of their life um, and, and I guess take control and ownership of their health issues as well because obviously if you're, if, if you're without you know, secure accommodation, your health issue might be the last priority for you. But we obviously are aware that that's incredibly important. Um, so it's, it's supporting our clients and seeing those success stories. When a client leaves our facility and you know where they're going to next is far better than where they've come, where they've come from. Mm. So um, those, are, those wins for us, are, yeah, and for, particularly for myself, and just that feeling of we are such an essential service and, and I think that we're actually filling a gap in the system right now with what we're doing. Um, that bridge between homelessness and health with um, Baptist Care have decided to step into that gap and be really um, innovative in how they want to address that. Um, so that's what inspires me, being part of something brand new <laughs> yeah. and seeing where it can go and how it can grow and develop. And I'm fortunate working with somebody like Jack who can see the bigger vision as well. Um, we, don't, we just want to grow. We, we think it's got so much potential. So that's what inspires oh, me. <laughs> brilliant. Fantastic. Thanks, Rochelle. And look, it sounds like you're a good duo or in a good team there. So <laughs> thank you so much for both of you. Have been, um, it's been a pleasure having a chat on our podcast series. Thanks a lot. Thanks pleasure, so John. To subscribe to a printed copy of Parody Magazine, visit chp.org.au forward slash parity. This podcast series has been developed by St Vincent's Health Australia. For more information about St Vincent's, visit www.svha.org.au. The music track for this podcast is called Slow Burn by Kevin McLeod, host of incompetech.filmmusic.io. 
and is licensed under the Creative Commons 4.0 by Attribution's license. This information, information about our guests and more can be found in the text under the podcast description. Thanks for listening.